I'm really excited about the series that we're starting today. We're starting a series called Invisible God. The idea is how do you actually love God when you can't see, touch, or hear God? How, how are we supposed to love God when that's the reality of our lives? By the way, I have lots of people that I can see, touch, and hear, and I don't like them, let alone love them. So how am I supposed to love God when I'm having a hard time loving the people that I do see? And yet the call to love God is so important and deep in the scripture and foundational to our faith. How do we do that when God's invisible? So these next few weeks, we're going to look at this. Bill and I are going to tackle this. This is, this is worthy, I think, of, of us going, we're going to go about seven weeks on this topic. We're going to hit all kinds of stuff. We're going to go everywhere from faith and doubt to how do different people connect to God individually based on how you're wired. We're going to go, we're going to talk about how uh, maybe God's actually been a part of your story and you haven't even realized it. We're going to talk about how loving God and loving people are really intimately connected. This, this next few weeks is going to be, I hope, practical and something that will resonate with you because we all, I think, could, can sing that song. We still haven't found what we're looking for because it sometimes feels like we're just not there. We're just, not, we're just missing somehow. So, so that's what we want to do. Uh, these next few weeks. But I want to start today by what I think is a really foundational understanding. Uh, the beginning of loving God, I think, is in this message today. I think if we don't talk about this message today, then we're going to jump ahead and, and miss some things that, um, you know, we're, we're going, we're starting in chapter five instead of chapter one. Today we want to start in chapter one about what does it mean to love God. And I want to ask the question if we're supposed to love God, is God lovable? And how do we, how do we know? How could, how could you actually say for a second that God to you is someone worth loving? And this is key because this is really the foundation of what Jesus says to people about what's important about our faith. And I'm going to go back now. Uh, we're going to start with the scripture. I'm going to go back to what uh, Bill talked about a couple weeks ago when he shared this passage, we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important thing that I need to remember? Uh, so here it is, Mark 12 says, one of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. There was a debate going, Jesus was always in the middle of debates about different topics, he was always surrounded by people, Jesus always had these brilliant answers, but this religious leader is listening to this debate that's going on. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Sum it up for me. What do I need to know? This is what Jesus said. Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel. Open your ears, because what I'm about to say is really important. Jesus is saying, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. So he starts by saying, this is a one-on-one -on -one relationship. This is a monogamous thing. This is, um, it's me and you. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, I know a lot of us have heard this before, but what I want you to catch here is I want you to notice this is comprehensive. God is saying, I want you to love me, and I want you to love me with everything. 
So to, to love someone with all your heart means that there's emotion involved. There's, there's feelings involved. And so it's good to stop back and say, have you ever had that emotion around God? Have you ever felt that toward God? Uh, the soul is involved. See, and we think of soul as differently than how they would have thought about it in the first century. Soul, for us, for a lot of us, we think soul is like the little something inside of us that when we die kind of floats away and lives in the cloud. That's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about soul. Soul means all of you. Soul is an encompassing term. Soul means every piece of you, like your fingernails, your hair, your gut, your heart, everything about you loves God. That's what Jesus is saying. Love me with all your soul, everything. Love me with all your strength. Don't just leave love as like warm fuzzies or feelings. To love God with your strength means that actions accompany it. I do. I don't just talk. That's, that's God saying, love me with your strength and then love me with your mind. Oh, this one's huge. To love God with your mind. Some of us maybe grew up in a family or maybe a church setting where you were told or you were indirectly maybe shamed even that you couldn't ask certain questions about God. You, maybe, maybe you grew up in an environment or you know, your house and you, um, you were told, man, don't ask questions like, does God actually exist? Don't ask questions like, is the Bible actually real or was it just made up by a bunch of guys in the first century? Don't ask questions like, was Jesus actually divine? Don't ask questions like, did he really raise for the dead? How do I know? That seems like we're staking a lot on this miracle. Some of us have grown up in environments where you can't ask those questions. I want to tell you, we've said this before, that's a crime. And you cannot be robbed of asking those questions because, and I'll take it a step further, I think we're actually... Um, going against Jesus' commandment here to love if we don't ask those questions because we're called to love God with our mind. Man, if, you don't, if you're not intellectually convinced that God exists, how are you supposed to love him? Man, if I wasn't intellectually convinced that my wife was real, our, that's a tough one for our relationship, okay? Man, you gotta enter in fully into doubt to love God with your mind means turn it on. Go to the next step with your level of thinking about uh, intellectually, is God real? Ask the questions, man. I'll tell you, this church is all about, that is so key to who we are as a church because we think that that actually is some of the foundation for loving God. So here you're getting this statement from Jesus, the most important thing is to love me. And then he says this last thing, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The, the love we had for God is intimately tied to our love for other people. And we'll, we're going to talk about that too. But today what I want to do is I want us to look at the foundation. Why is it that we would love God? Is God actually lovable? If that's the command, why would we even want to love God in return? Some of you are going to have heard this message before. What I want to ask you is I want you to hear it freshly today. This is a message we need to tell ourselves every single day when we wake up. So key. But I want to start with a key phrase. And I want you, as I write it up here, I want you to think, can you agree with this? 
or do you disagree with this phrase? Here's, here's the phrase. God is for you. Do you feel like, honestly, you could stand in front of the mirror tomorrow morning and say, I believe God is for me? I believe it. I believe that God actually wants to see me thrive. I believe that God loves me. I believe that God is on my, on my team, on my side. And maybe for a bunch of you, you're like, well, yeah, of course. Did you know there's a study done uh, out of Baylor University? They asked uh, people all over the country, people who believed in God, what's your image of God? You know how many people actually agreed with this statement or could say that they had that kind of image of God, that God is actually on your team? 25%. A quarter of Americans would say that they agree with this statement. So undoubtedly, for those of us in this room, there are many of us who would find ourselves in the 75% that would say, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that God is actually for me. So it goes to the question of your image of God, and that's where we got to start with this. What, what, where did you get your image of God? Who, what shaped that? I have a, a niece named Dania. She's so great. She's a college student now. But about 10 years ago, I used to go, uh, I'd go all the time out to weekend camps and, you know, uh, do talks for middle and high school kids. And so I asked Dania on one of these trips out, I said, hey, I want to I talk to kids about where they got their idea of God in the first place. So would you draw me some pictures of how you think people see God. And so here's Dania, this eight-year-old, and she draws me some pictures and sends them to me. I think she may have gotten a little help. But, um, but let me show you some of the pictures. Some of them are profound, what she came up with. So this is the first one she sent me. She said, God is a fun stealer. So, some people see God as like the guy who's ready to take away your fun at any moment. He's like the God of mosquitoes, you know? Like I, I go camping and he sends a swarm uh, like, what is that? We, we, some of us have this image of God. Where did that come from? Here's another one she sent me. Uh, rules God. That God is kind of on the prowl. God actually watches you every day with a close eye, waiting to see when you step out of line. Oh, you just, you just cussed in front of the pastor, right? Like God's ready to zap you at any moment for that. That's some people's image of God. This is one Dania sent me. She just sent me a blank sheet of paper. She said, yeah, some people just don't believe in God. They're, they're not there. That's some people's image of God. And then the last one she sent me, in the clouds God. That God exists, but God made a decision at the very beginning. God created the earth, created people in the earth, but then God decided to retreat. God decided to kind of go away, live in the cloud somewhere. He's kind of observing at a long distance away, but he's actually not intimately involved with the everyday world that we live in. There's actually a name for this. It's, if, if, you, if, that, if that is something you would say you believe, that's deism. A deist thinks that God created things and then sh- slipped off and you know, just watches at a distance. Guys, in the clouds God, rules God, a distant God, that is 75% of people in the U.S. who say they believe in God. Only 25% would say, 
I think God is actually intimately involved in my life and present. I asked Dania to show me what she thought about God. She did this picture here. It's God, a king with a crown, arms wide open, with a door behind him. He's talking to someone that is desperately in need of a shower and a haircut, but loves that unshowered person anyway, you know, and is inviting that person in. That, that was what Danny said, this is my picture of God, Uncle Jim. Where do you fall on this? So here's the deal. If you can't answer this in the, in the 25% that says God is for me, you're welcome to listen to the, lesson, the rest of the message. But I actually want you to stop and think, where did that come from? You know, the homework for those of us in that 75% category is, how did I develop that image of God? Did that come from my family of origin? You know, there's studies out there that say a lot of people develop their image of God based around their relationship with their dad. And so if your dad was distant or not there or who knows what, that might play into how you view God and you've taken that image and you've transferred it over to God. Maybe it's from something that happened to you or maybe something that didn't happen to you. Maybe it's from the media. I... Generally, the media, I think, likes to portray God as the rules God. That, you know, we're trying to earn our way there and he'll zap us when we get out of line. Where did we get our image of God? You have to stop and think. What were some of your earliest images of God? And did they play into this notion that you can't look in the mirror in the morning and say, God is for me? We've got to start there. Because that's, that's the first step. Because we can't actually, the next step doesn't make a ton of sense if we don't have this first step. Because the story of the Bible goes like this. I'm going to give you the Bible in like 10 or 12 words today. The story of the Bible moves from God is for you, God created you in his image to know you. The story moves to, very quickly, (laughs) the story moves to we turn away. Some of you know what it's like to love someone very intently and have them reject you. That's the story of the scripture. God is for you and yet we turn away. The word sin means simply to miss the mark. That we have sinned, we have turned away. This is is a rough way to have a relationship with someone. When when we turn our backs on God, this, this kind of relationship doesn't last long. In fact, it'll drive me crazy if I keep looking back there. Now we're meant to be in a relationship like this but every human heart turns away. Romans, a book Paul wrote, chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every single one. It may be 25% who actually can hold to this, but the truth about this one is that this is 100%. Everybody has sinned and fallen away from God. Even if you grew up in the church, even if your church attendance is perfect, you know, even if you look around and you compare yourself with other people that you know and you go, man, I am doing so much better than that person. Thank God. We do that. And yet, the truth is, we are all stuck. And then in Romans 6, it says the wages of sin are death. There's separation. God's for us, we turn away, and yet there's a separate thing that happens here, a separation between us and God. 
And every single one of us lives in that reality, whether in some ways we realize it or not. Uh, a friend of mine told me the story that I thought was such a great way to understand this. Uh, he told me the story about him when he was a kid. And he was probably 11, 12 years old. And his name is Sean. He had a younger brother named Tim. And Sean and Tim came into a giant stash of illegal fireworks. This is great when you're 11 years old and you're a boy. And what do you do with an illegal stash of fireworks? You hide it in your closet. You just you put it in your closet. You, you put all the clothes on top of it. You do everything to disguise it. This is exactly what Sean did. And Sean and Tim couldn't wait for his parents to leave and so he could pull out all the fireworks and they could all shoot them off. So sure enough, it's the middle of the summer, a nice hot day. The parents go off to work. Sean and Tim say, today's the day. They go in, they grab their fireworks, they pull them out onto the driveway, and they start lighting them off, right, one after another. And things are going great, right? And they're high-fiving and having a great time out in their driveway until they put a bottle rocket in, and Tim comes up, the little brother comes up, and it's his turn to light it. He comes up, and he lights the bottle rocket, and as he lights it, he turns away to run, and his foot hits the bottle. The bottle falls over and faces right toward the house. Fuse is going, shh. Sean and Tim are like, ah. Hits the rocket, shh. Takes off right into the house. Blows up in those juniper bushes. I'm telling you, if you have juniper bushes, get rid of them. Those things are the sickest things, man. Goes into the juniper bush in front of the house, blows up, big thing catches on fire. There's a fire now in front of this house. Sean and Tim are looking at each other going, what do we do? They run up to the house, uncoil the hose, turn it on. You know, they're going off on this fire and they put it out. So they got a problem. There's a huge burnt bush now in front of the house, okay? Immediately they start thinking, what, what do you think they thought? How are we going to lie about this? What are we going to tell? We've got to tell our parents that somebody came by and they threw their cigarette into the book. You know, they're, they're, they're coming up with different scenarios on how this happened. they got another problem, though. They have a younger sister. Susan comes to the door, hands on hips, and says, all they hear is a little voice that says, I'm calling Dad. Right? No. She goes in the house, she shuts the door, and she locks the door. They're like trying to stop her from calling dad. They're running around the house trying to find a different entry point. Finally, Susan comes back to the window, opens the window, and they hear another voice just say, dad's on his way. No, they are panicked. What do you think their solution was? What do you think the first thing they thought now to do is because dad's on the way? If, I'm going to give you a hint. Read Genesis chapter 3. They decided to hide. They're running around the house. They're looking for anywhere. They Should we hide in this tree? Should we hide in the shed? Should we hide? Where should we hide? Dad knows all those spots. We got to figure out somewhere where their dad would never find us. They run out under the street and they notice a sewer cover. The two boys, 11 and 8, get down. Dad will never find us here. Pick up the sewer cover and pull it over just far enough where they can see down and they can slip by it. They look down in the sewer hole and they see a stairway down. And at the bottom of the stairs, they hear 
what they think is water going through. They go, this is perfect. Tim climbs down the stairs first, and he gets to the bottom of the stairs, and, you know, sewer covers are, sewers are eight feet deep or something like that, and so Tim's down here, crouched as far as he can go, and then Sean comes in next, and Sean is up just above him as far as he can go, and they both have to be like this to make room on it, and Sean reaches up, and somehow, they had just slightly moved the cover enough to get down there, Sean is able to move it back and the sewer cover comes and clicks in and it's now back on top of them and they are in the dark under the ground and they look at each other and say, this is awesome. <laughs> like, Dad will never find us here. Awesome, right? They're doing like the foot high five thing. Like. But they're underground. 20 minutes go by. They're sitting down there, and Tim, the younger brother, is the first one to go, hey, Sean, uh, was this a good idea? You know? And by the way, don't you love the lack of in-game thinking? Like, what's their in-game? <laughs> you know? Great, you hid from dad in a space that you'll never get out of again. No, they're, they're, so they're down there 20 minutes. They start kind of asking, you should have done this. Oh, shut up, man. We've got to stay down here. We can't let dad find us. 45 minutes go by. Tim says again, Sean, I don't know. 45 minutes said it was the first time his arms started shaking. Dad, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, Sean, we should be down here like this. We should probably just go up and apologize to Dad, and it's going to be fine. No, we're staying down here. You're fine. An hour goes by. Sean finally goes, okay, maybe we should get out of here. And they're talking, and finally Sean goes, all right, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to get out. We're going to go up. We're going to apologize to Dad. We're going to beg for forgiveness. We're going to tell him everything, and we'll just see what he does with us. So Sean reaches up to get the cover off, and it's not budging at all. How in the world is an 11-year-old boy who is hanging on for dear life with one arm while all the stuff is going underneath him, going to be able to move a sewer cover with one arm. You guys, they are completely stuck underground. Guys, this is exactly the picture that the Bible paints. As human beings, God's for us, loves us, but the fact of the matter is, is that we turn away and there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. It is so key to understand this. If we're going to foundationally love God and love what God has done and is doing in the world, we got to understand our own situation. We are underground trying to push our way up and we're going nowhere. So these boys are underground. Two hours goes by. They've been down here for two hours now. Finally, they just go, what, what options do they have? The only option they could really think of is just to scream their heads off. Dad! Just screaming. Nothing happens. The boys are down there for four hours. After four hours, they start to sense the sun is going down. It's getting darker outside. It's colder. They start to hear more and more the water. It feels like it's getting louder, the water. 
they just, they stop screaming because they're exhausted. Now all the boys can do is they're just weeping. They're trembling, hanging on for dear life, and weeping. They hang on for two more hours. At the six-hour point of being underground, hanging onto this ladder, Tim, the younger brother on the bottom, reaches up to try to get a new grip. Right? He's, he's trying to find a way to keep holding on. At the same time, Sean said he moved his foot to do the same, try to get better footing. And he hit Tim's hand. And he lost his grip. And he fell down into however much stuff it was, moving fast. And Tim was swept down. And they actually never heard from Tim again. Okay, I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. That's totally not what happened, okay? I'm totally, I'm, I do this to make sure you're paying attention, okay? That's not what happened. Gosh. So what kind of church is this? Story is this? I'm supposed to leave here encouraged. No. That's not what happened. No, at the, at the end of six hours, and this is Sean's story, they were there for six hours. At the end of six hours, they just heard a voice that said, Sean, Tim, Dad, Sean, Tim, Dad, Sean, Tim, Dad, Sean, Tim, Dad. And suddenly they hear this noise and this light floods down onto them. And they can't move. Their arms are shivering. And they must have been a sight to see for the dad looking down. And so the dad, just with these huge, strong arms, reaches down, much like mine, <laughs> reaches down and grabs Sean first and pulls him up and sets him on the street. And then he grabs Tim and he pulls him up and he sets him on the street. And there's no I'm sorry's, there's no... There's no shaming. There's no, you stupid kids. There's none of that. There's just grab you, love you, cry, thank God you've been found. That's exactly what happens. Guys, man, when we turn away, this is so key to understand. This is exactly what Jesus Christ does with us. This is why, for me, Jesus is lovable. When we turn away, God's got a couple options, and this is, this is really key to understand because this is where different uh, faith traditions in the world go separate ways. God looks at this and he says, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm loving you anyway. Didn't have to do that. Most people in the world Different faith traditions think of it this way. Not that God loves us anyway. They look at the problem and they think the solution is, well, now you just got to go earn it. You have to morally somehow figure out how to climb your way out of that pit. But that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible talks about with Jesus. That Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm coming as a person, myself, God in the flesh, and when we look at this problem, 
The wages of sin is death. You know what I did? The cross does this. The cross looks at those words, you earn it, and says, no. Nope. That's not how it works. My love for you expressed on the cross in Christ says, I love you anyway. That's why I love Jesus. He did not have to do that. That's the foundation of loving Christ. Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament in Galatians, the book he wrote, he says, you know what, if, if, uh, if you're still trying to earn your way to God, if your belief system says that God is a rules God and I'm going to have to be really good at the rules to earn my way back into his favor, then Paul says Christ died for nothing. There was no point in him dying. It's, a, it's an incredible point that Paul makes. No, we're, we're actually pulled out of the sewer by a generous God who rescues us. God loves us anyway. That's why. That's why. That's the foundation of our love for Christ. But there's two more words I want to share with you that I think help summarize this entire idea of love for God and the Bible. The last two words are you You decide. You get to choose. Do you ever stop and think? The fact that you could be listening to this talk right now that we're, you know, having this conversation and you could be doubting what I'm saying to me is a great sign that God is real. Guys, God actually gives us the choice. Do you, do you understand there actually cannot be love if there is no choice? And so God has given us this incredible, gracious ability to hear this message and then for ourselves decide. Even that is a sign of his love, that we get a choice. Nothing's forced on us. So what will we choose? As you enter into this series, we're going to get all practical. We're going to get all, you know, how you're wired. We're going to talk about all kinds of things about this invisible God. But we've got to be clear on the foundation of why we'd even love him in the first place. And for me, that's it right there. Have you chosen? Have you at some point said, I want in on that? And you can do that. You can make a choice and say, yeah, I believe that. I see it. I see it in a new way. You know, Becky sings that song up here, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Man, it resonates in me so much. And all of us, I think, can relate to it. I don't want to sing that for my whole life, though. I don't want to sing that song to my grave. I actually think God can be what we are looking for. We can find an invisible God. And I really hope you'll stick with us on this series because we're going to go somewhere with this. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are real, that you're present, that you're not distant. And yet, God, you leave, you leave so much room for us to wonder that that's true. And you leave so much room uh, to think, are you there? God, I pray that these next few weeks we could be so honest about where we are with you, that we could be um, so clear with you, and that we wouldn't just talk about you, we would talk to you through this series. 
So God, we invite you into this. We invite you into the conversations that we will have as a church. We invite you into our lunches. We invite you into our homes at night when we talk with our family or our friends. And we pray that uh, the things that will be brought up in these next few weeks will be things that will be dealt with in great honesty. So God, thank you for uh, these people who encourage me and uh, who I love. And I pray um, that that love, Lord, um, would win through this series. So, so Lord, we give you... Uh, all that's ahead with this in Jesus' name, amen.